and welcome to another episode of the Live Immediately podcast with Mike Campbell. Thank you so much for listening. This is where I have conversations with people who are living life on their own terms. We dive into those big moments that have pushed them through the fears and self-limiting beliefs that hold so many of us back. Now, we can often feel like we've ticked all the boxes of social expectation, but then we still have this feeling of emptiness. We keep trying to chase that imaginary finishing line. My guest today, Lynn Welsh, is a girl from the suburbs of Sydney who felt like she had ticked all the boxes of social expectation. And then that age-old question, so now what, came into her mind. But unlike many of us, Lynn decided to explore the world to see if she could find the answer. Lynn, who feels more comfortable and at home in a foreign place, now runs two businesses in the Indian town of Ladakh which is at the foothills of the Himalayas, and this town has no road access for seven months of the year during winter. Lynn and I pieced together her epic travel adventures and discussed designing a lifestyle around flexibility, going into the unknown without expectations, working through cultural differences, and crowdfunding a new school. I love Lynn's easygoing, let's see what happens, caring attitude. And if you're anything like me, by the end of this podcast, you will want to travel to the remote town of Ladakh to see its beauty and enjoy the simple things in life. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lynn Welsh. Hi, Lynn. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Mike. That is good. And whereabouts in this beautiful world do I find you today? Well, I'm currently on holiday in Australia, um, but actually I live in a place called Ladakh in India, which is in the Himalayas. Oh, nice. So you have two places that you call home, I guess. I do, but I still call Australia home. (laughs) Can you sing that for me? Uh, I had to throw that in there. Come on, like it was just <laughs> such an opportunity to use that line. <laughs> and I guess that's what we'll be talking about today, how a girl from the suburbs of Sydney finds herself in the remote village of Ladakh at the foothills of the Himalayas. So take me back to when you were in your mid-20s and you and I have chatted offline and you said that you felt like you had ticked all the boxes of social expectations, but you weren't really satisfied. What was it that you felt you know, you were missing? Oh, what I was missing. I guess that's, you know, that's why people go to India. I don't know what I was missing, but it was so, you know, do the stereotypical trip to India and go for some soul searching. Um, yeah, but I, I felt that I'd kind of done everything that people expected people to do. I bought a house. I had a good job. I was fairly stable. I had a good, you know, relationship, a financially stable, all those kinds of things. And I guess I was, you know, seeing what I was like, what's next? What's more? I, I'm, is this it? Do, do I just have kids now? And then that's all? Or like, there's, there must be more. And and why India? Or was it just that's the place that people go to find themselves? Uh, I think there was a little bit of that. Um, all, the other thing was that I was working kind of in social work and I felt that India would be a place that I could really experience, you know, poverty, I guess. And I also had it in my mind that it would be like much, I was born in, I was actually born in South Africa, but, and I could have gone to Africa to experience poverty, but 
I guess I felt that India would be safer for a, a female, which is really ironic. But yeah, I, I think India was always on my bucket list. So India was, you know, one of the places where I had to see and what I'd read in books and all that kind of thing. And there were just so many extremes about ashrams and yoga and, you know, just different Bollywood and things like that that really interested me. And when you got there, were you just a tourist or were you volunteering your time? Like what was your experience like when you went on that initial trip? Um, Initially I went for six weeks. I took time off work and I went as a tourist and I joined a tour group and I did what they call the golden triangle, which is just a really stereotypical, you know, Taj Mahal Delhi tour with Jaipur. Um, And I really loved it, but I felt that that wasn't really what I'd come to see. And the tour guide that was with us said, look, if you really want to go and see something that you, you know, would find interesting that most people don't go to see, you should go to this place called Ladakh. And I was like, okay, well, next time. And I mean, people say that when they go on trips all the time, well, next time I come, I'll do this. But I I just came home and went, well, I'm going back and I've got to go to this place because if, you know, if the locals tell me that this is where you go, then then you go. And by that point, I'd had a bit of experience, you know, being in India. So I had some idea of what to expect. Um, and also I felt that I could do it. I had the confidence to do it. So yeah, that was, it was only the second trip that I actually went to where I live now and, you know, where I ended up. And, and on that, on that second trip, you were teaching English to little Buddhist monks and yeah. like, did, did you think that you were, would ever do that? Like, did your careers advisor at school sit you down and say, listen, Lynn, this is what we have installed for you? Um, gosh, I don't know. I, there's so many things in my life that I don't think the careers advisor would have ever anticipated, but no, like every, lots of things I do seemed a little bit surreal, but I, I, I'm fairly laid back about things and I, I go with the flow. Like I, you know, I'm, I've got that kind of sink or swim mentality. So whatever I do, whether it's, you know, go for a job that people might be scared to get and I'm not qualified, I've never done this kind of work, I'll be like, oh, well, I'll go for it. Like, let's see what happens. Um, and it was the same with, okay, I'm going to go and volunteer. And I eventually, you know, fasting, fast forward a little bit, uh, decided to to quit my job and, and leave everything in Australia, sell my house, sell my car, blah, blah, blah. And at that point, I thought I'm going to go volunteer and see where it takes me. And and in my mind, I thought I might go and teach English because that just seemed like something that I could definitely find work in or volunteer work in. Um, but the first kind of gig that I did was actually living in a little uh, kind of like a guest house in a fishing village. And I didn't, it wasn't really, it was like, it was like a, a volunteer holiday for me. All I had to do with, was like sit with tourists and talk about, you know, being in, being in Vietnam and and what life was like in the fishing village. And, you know, I'd never expected that. I thought I'm going to go and volunteer and do good things. And, and I landed this gig where I was like on a full-time holiday living in, you know, a village right next to the beach. It was awesome. So, so, so you're, you're in Vietnam, right? So just kind of piecing this, this journey together for people. You yeah. went, went to India for that second time and you came back and you, you brushed over the point very quickly before you got to Vietnam where you came back and, you decided to formally resign from your job, sell your house, sell your car and sell most of your belongings so you could go traveling again because that, I guess that Indian experience must have had quite a profound impact on your life. But like that is a huge decision to follow your heart or your desire and your will and completely change the direction of your life. 
when you were going through that process, did you have any apprehension while you were doing it all? Um, look, I, 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 I guess I go into things having, I guess I thought about it. Um, but I think because it was so easy for me to reach, you know, that point of, okay, I've got what I thought I should get, you know, I think I never really had too much fear of losing it. It was just so easy. I guess, um, I thought I always had in the back of my mind, I'm still young. Mm. I work hard, you know, I'm switched on. I can, I can, I can do it. There was never, ever an element of self-doubt that, you know, what if it doesn't work out? Because even if I'd never got the same kind of job or lived in the same house, um, I think by that point, having travelled through India and, you know, I'd obviously travelled before that as well in mostly South Asian countries, I'd, I'd realised that my expectations, like, personally had changed. I didn't need the fancy things. Like, I mean, yeah, I like them. Don't get me wrong. It's not like I'm a complete minimalist or anything like that. I do appreciate them, but I didn't need them. And that, that I guess, was a bit of a realisation for me that whatever happens, um, you know, I'll always be okay. Yeah. And I, I think, too, once you you do travel and you see how a lot of the world lives, you realise that we have abundance in Australia. Yeah. We really do. So much. And I guess even more so now um, you know, we'll go in, we'll get into that, but I've, I've married an Indian now and, you know, he comes from a really remote place that has really, really limited things. Um, so, so bringing him to Australia and seeing things that were just everyday life for me and for him, it was like, wow, what is that? It's like, that's a dishwasher. So you have a machine that you, what, what is it? What, what, like he, he didn't know what that was. Wow. He didn't, he hadn't seen a dishwasher before. So like the, the kind of sweetness of him going, you know, in Australia they have a machine and you put your dishes in it <laughs> and you push a button and they come out clean and, you know, so many things that we just take as absolute second nature. And for so many people in the world, they're just not. And, I mean, that seems really easy to say, but for me to really experience it mm. firsthand, oh, wow, it, it's a big kind of, lesson about what's necessary and what's not. So you were saying that you had no self-doubts or these self-limiting beliefs. So to kind of pack everything up and go traveling was, I guess there was this element of, of ease for you. But what was it about that normal life or your Australian life or that, that path that you were kind of heading on that didn't feel right for you? I don't think it was a case of that I wasn't happy in Australia or anything like that. I, I guess it was just that I had a really curious nature and an interest in, in other cultures. And I just felt that I wasn't going to get the kind of uh, like lessons or information or experience or whatever it might be, like staying and doing the same thing. And I felt that while I was young and, you know, I had the, the means to do so, I thought if I go and you know, step head first into another country and try and absorb the culture as much, this will kind of fulfill my desire for mm. that kind of, you know, cultural experience, I guess. It's so it's so often that the the fear of standing still or the fear of being stagnant makes us want to travel. Yeah. So you you sold your house, you sold everything and you were saying that you were teaching in a in a small village in Vietnam. How was how was that journey? 
So, yeah, I once I kind of made, I, you know, I, I traveled to India twice, both times on holidays, the first time for six weeks, the second time for three months. And then I kind of came back to Australia and decided, nah, I'm, this holiday thing, this isn't what I what I need. I need to have an unlimited time period. I can't be like, oh, well, hi, I'm Lynn and I'm going back to Australia in six weeks. So, you know, give me what you got. Tell me everything. So I, I, once I came to that realisation, I came back to Australia and packed up my life, essentially, um, and I thought, I'm just going to go. And by that point, uh, obviously, I had a, a bank account that was fairly full, having sold everything, but I thought, I'm really going to ration out my money and I don't need to, you know, book a really fancy hotel anywhere. I'm just literally going to try and do this as cheaply as possible. So I went online and the cheapest air ticket out of Sydney was to uh, – Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam and I thought I'm going to start there and I'm going to go wherever I go and kind of see where the wind takes me and so I I'd spent three months in Vietnam and you know worked in this fishing village or volunteered in this fishing village made my way into Cambodia taught in a well <laughs> that's kind of another story I, I had planned to teach in a school in Cambodia but when I turned up at this village there was a huge monsoon and the school had broken down and I could see for myself that there were pieces of the school and desks overturned but there was no school so having already got my visa for Cambodia and vowing not to waste money and I didn't really know what else to do I thought I will try and crowdfund money to get another school so I kind of sat down with the village elders and I through a little bit of really difficult translation tried to ascertain how much money it was to, to like you know how much money do you need to build a new school um, this was about five, six years ago now, but I think it was about $1,500. It was kind of nothing. And I thought, oh, I've got the means to crowdfund. They probably don't even know what that is, but that's a skill I can bring. So for myself, I was still volunteering and I was still contributing to local communities. But for them, kind of handing over the cash was just a huge thing. So that was kind of that little stint. But just on, um, just on that, like that little stint and – you might be a little bit modest here, but that's that's pretty powerful to be able to kind of go to a country, the village that you were going to teach at, the school had fallen down before you got there. And instead of just going, well, I'm on my way, I, I can't do what I wanted to do. And I, while, whilst I was here, you completely changed that and you really, I guess, left I don't want to, I'll, I'll, legacy is the only word coming to my mind, but you left your mark on that village and really helped them out. Like that is, that's really special. Yeah, I don't even know what to say. I guess, I mean, yeah, I guess it was a tangible legacy that I have left, but it really wasn't about that. You know, it, it was, it was all part of the experience. Like, you know, my desire to kind of experience the culture, I was like, I wonder how much it actually costs to build a school in a village. Like, really? Like, if I said to you, how much does it cost to build a school in Sydney, Australia? It would be like, I don't know, hundreds of millions, like, no, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. I have no idea. It's not even a, a, like, no one, like, well, maybe someone could crowdfund that on a whim. But, but when they told me it was like $1,500 and that, you know, the kids hadn't been going to school, like, it just seemed like such an easy thing. And I guess every like everyone who volunteers does what they can with the resources that they have available. So, you know, I went into that job thinking I can speak English, I can teach English, I 
I can work well with children. So this is a skill that I've got to give here. Um, but then in the fishing village, when I was like volunteering in the guest house, it was like, you know what, I can mingle with the guests and keep them entertained because it's a tiny little village and there's not much else to do. So that was a skill that I had. So when it comes to volunteering, people just contribute whatever they've got. And some people don't have time to sit down with other people and they uh, donate money and use sponsorship as a way of contributing. And that's fantastic. Everyone should contribute what they can, whether it's time or resources. You know, some someone might say, oh, look, I don't really have much money to give you or I don't have any time to go around the world. But, you know, I have a, a couple of trees in the backyard and I'm happy to donate my timber. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, I mean, that that was always a thing for me. It's like you do the best with what you've got. And that, that kind of carries me through life just generally. Oh, it's a great trait to have. It really <laughs> is. So tell me about your home, Ladakh. Like how did you come about living there? Okay, so I eventually, after after about a year of backpacking through Southeast Asia, I made my way to this infamous Ladakh that I'd been told about um, with the idea that I would again teach English in a monastery. Um, but by that point, I'd been traveling for so long that I, I, I'd started to run out of money a little bit or, you know, I wasn't as financially comfortable as I felt that I could have been. And I was a little bit bored and I was a little bit ready to, I guess, not settle down, but just do something for me. And that sounds really selfish. So yeah, that's exactly what it is. It was selfish. So I had this idea that I would start a travel agency in Ladakh because when I told people that I was going to Ladakh or making my way to Ladakh, no one had ever heard of it. And when I left Australia and I told people that, you know, my, my, one of the, where are you going? Well, I don't know, but at some point I'm going to get to this place in India that I've been told about called Ladakh. No one had ever heard of it. So I always thought, you know what, if no one's ever heard of it, maybe people would want to go there. Like maybe I could capitalize on this. Um, so I made my way to Ladakh and I thought, again, I, I didn't, I was trying to do things super cheaply. So I, instead of volunteering at the school, I volunteered at a travel agency. And I basically went to the travel agency and said, look, I'm happy to help you out with your marketing and, you know, whatever else you might need me for. Um in exchange for some work experience. And I started working in this office and met my now husband who works there. And yeah. <laughs> and and so like you, you meet your husband at the travel agent and then you guys branch off and, and start your own business. Like I, I pat myself on the back when I can release a podcast each week, but here you are <laughs> on the other side of, of the world running two businesses in a town that doesn't even have running water in every house. Yeah, and I, I don't think I could do that if I was if it, like I, I don't I couldn't do that here. I couldn't do that in Australia. Like it was it was a passion that we both had and look, you do stupid things for love, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not a stupid thing. I'm really happy with the way things are, but but yeah, it just it was a way that we could both ultimately be together and you know, he had, again, he, like he brought to the table a lot of logistical skills and language skills and he'd done a master's in tourism. So he knew a lot about the tourism industry and how things work. Um, and from my side, I, you know, I could bring to the table a little bit of marketing and, you know, I guess the asset of people having faith in a foreigner owning a business and, and having this peace of mind that, that I'll do things and set up their travel arrangements to their expectations. Mm -hmm. So as a team, we work really well. 
And um, yeah, I, I guess on that though, like you, at what point did you realize, hey, this is this is going to be home for me? Like obviously, when you you find love abroad, um, that that can sometimes create a, a new home for you. But at what moment did you realize, yeah, this is this is where I'm kind of going to put my roots down for a while? Um, look, I'll be really honest and say that I I was quite naive and and go with the flow about things. I. I definitely didn't expect him to come back and live in Australia. Um, it never really, I, I think by that point I decided that I couldn't really come back and live permanently in Australia. It wasn't, you know, I just, I felt that I'd changed and, and I just felt, I guess I felt, I'm not going to say happier, but I felt, I felt more comfortable. I felt more, more at home in a foreign place. And I, I didn't, I don't see family is a huge thing for me. So I didn't see the point of us living somewhere else. Like it was either my home or his home. Um, and again, you never know what's going to happen in the future. And Indians especially have their own special definition on time. Um, so for now we're in Ladakh. We've been in Ladakh for five years. We plan to be in Ladakh, but who knows what will happen. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, at that time, to be honest, we had so many problems with visas and things, getting him a visa for Australia. Even I am having some challenges getting my spousal visa to, to stay in India. Um, so I think we're just going with it. We're just going with the flow without any, like, worries about, you know, again, it's just like, okay, well, let's just see what happens. Um, yeah. And again, it's a great way to, to, to live life, not kind of get bogged down in the things that you, you have zero control over. But I guess living in a different country, and again, you might, you probably will need to give a little bit more of a background on Ladakh, but what were some of the, the big things that you had to get used to? Okay, so Ladakh is in uh, India, but it's nothing like India, like nothing at all. The people are basically uh, primarily where I live, they're, they're almost all Tibetan Buddhist, um, otherwise like a little bit of Muslim. Um, and they, they look almost Mongolian or Chinese often. They, they don't really look like a stereotypical Indian. Where we live is quite a big town, but we don't have tuk-tuks or autos or traffic lights or <laughs> anything like that. Um, we don't, and I'm just like, this is the way it's, I tell people, yeah, you live in India, but I don't live anywhere near the Taj Mahal. I, we don't eat spicy food. Like it's, it's something that's been introduced fairly recently that people are starting to eat now but in my mother and father-in-law's house you wouldn't necessarily find any spices or anything like that they eat noodles and dumplings and and soups and things that you associate with asian culture so it's really asian more than indian um so you're asking me sorry and, 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 and so like the the landscape the topography of the land it's you know it's at the foothills of the himalayas and you were telling me how um, offline, how when the snow comes, the the roads are blocked off and you, you can't get in and out of the village without roads. And a lot of the houses don't have running waters. I'm just, I'm just picturing all yeah. this stuff when you were telling me offline. And I'm, I'm trying to think of, of how I would adapt to that scenario. Um, and so I guess that's my, that's my question. Like, how did you adapt to that? And, and what were some of the biggest challenges? So where we live, it's called a cold desert. And as you say, we don't have road access in and out for roughly seven months of the year. 
Um, there's a lot of differences and I, I'm still, still, uh, I guess, getting used to the cold or getting used to the repercussions of cold. So, for example, we have to switch our, our we, have a, we have water, we have running water in our house because we have a guest house that we host tourists in. So I've kind of, I, I just have a little side note. It's not as hard as you think for me because I feel like I've created the best of a challenging situation. But in my family home, so my in-laws home, they live in the village. They get, they don't have running water. They don't have taps in the house. Um, they have a stream that goes through their garden and, you know, in for about seven, well, for a long time, that stream is frozen and in which case they have to drive down to get water and it's all very hard. So my life, I have running water for, let's say, five months of the year. I have taps and toilets and showers. But then for seven months of the year, we have to switch off the water. We have to switch off the pipes and not let any water go through the pipes because it gets so cold that the water cracks the pipes. And basically what we do is for a few months, we can access a bore. So we'll go and fill up buckets from a local bore and we'll you know, you, we'll use these buckets of water for absolutely everything. If we want to take a bath, you literally have to heat up the buckets on the stove or on the fireplace inside the house. Um, if you want to cook, you want to make rice, you want to make tea, you want to make, you want to wash your dishes, you want to wash your clothes. It's all like through these buckets of water. So it's it's really labor intensive to have water. And I guess that was hard for me in the beginning because it, for me, it was just like, oh gosh, I got to have a shower. It's so hard. Like, um, and then that that's only available for about three months. And then for the rest of the time, you a tanker comes around on the road and we have to run up to the, the road and fill up buckets every second day from the tanker that delivers it. And that's even more labor intensive. So <laughs> I find that really challenging. And the lack of like we don't shower every day in winter. It's just too hard. And, you know, that sounds horrible and disgusting. But, yeah, we it. it it's not even about it being hard. It's just, I don't know. It's just, it's just not what we do. It's mm. just not a thing. Like here we are in the, in the Western world, we are so clean about everything and, you know, yeah, everything. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm sure there's, there's sedentary. I think that's the word I'm looking for on the plates and stuff like that. But like we, that's the water comes from a stream at some point. There's no like, or it's Indian style, like mm. filtering processes and stuff like that. So it took me a long time to, to understand that things weren't going to be as clean and that this was my life because in the beginning it was a novelty and, wow, people wash their dishes in the stream. And then it was like, oh, I've got to wash my dishes in the stream. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's, it sounds like permanent camping. It is like permanent <laughs> camping. But I think, and I guess, as I said, it, I've been there five years now. Um, yeah, that it, it just seems like that's how it is. And I'm not going to say it's easy and I've gotten used to it or anything like that. It's just it is how it is and that's how they live. And, you know, I, I, I will say that the biggest effect that it has on me is when I come back to Australia, turning on the tap and the hot water tap, I appreciate that every single time. I'm not even joking. It, I am so grateful about that and it's such a small thing. And I, I guess that uh, that kind of appreciation impacts me on so many levels in Australia um, these days, things that I really took for granted. Now I can really appreciate them. And, you know, we're, we're talking here about some of those, those physical differences, but what, what have been some of the big cultural differences that you had to adjust to? Yeah. So I had a, a an Indian wedding or a Ladakhi wedding 
Um, I had no idea what was going on the whole time. Um, there, we, we speak a number of languages in Ladakh. So they speak Ladakhi, which is sort of like Tibetan. Um, they also understand Hindi um, and Urdu and English, like some people speak English. So I guess like it, it, the, the language barriers have been particularly difficult and as much as I'd like to learn Ladakhi, because that's that should that should theoretically be you know the first language of the people where I live. Um, it's it's a spoken language, so it's not a written language, which means that there's no learning aids really mm. to help you learn the language. It's just a case of being a like having conversations and trying to have conversations with people who can translate for you in English. So it's constantly like, what's he saying? Okay, that word means this, and that word goes in front of the vowel or, or the verb or whatever. Like, so I found that I, I still find that challenging because where I, I live in say the town of Ladakh um, and my in-law family live in a different region and they have a different dialect. So whilst I'm pretty like proud, I guess that I can understand some, or I would say most Ladakhi um, when I go home to the village, it's a different dialect and I feel like I have to start again because for me it's it's almost totally different. And that's I struggle with that because I I, I want to impress my family and I want to I want you know sit down and sit down by the fire and really, really chat and mm. tell them about my life in Australia or tell them things. Um, but it's very slow. It's very broken English and, and I and I, I I'm not really sure when I'm gonna feel like, you know, it's easy and comfortable. Yeah, that's it's really interesting. I, I, I would I would struggle, you know, learning a new language, having to learn four or five. That's um, <laughs> that's something real special. But I guess uh, you know, changing tacks here a little bit, like with the snow and you know having no road access for six months or more, and the majority of the businesses closing down. Obviously, tourism happens in in the summertime, and I guess it's a gateway for the Himalayas. But a lot of the businesses are closing down, and a lot of the nearby farms obviously close down too with the snow. What's it like living in a community where everyone takes an extended break at the same time? Yeah, so everything closes like as i said i live in the town like usually everything closes the town consists of a lot of travel agencies and restaurants that cater for tourists and you know that kind of thing and with no road access there's no fresh food coming in there's no bananas for seven months where i live uh, I, I, there's no oranges these things don't work in winter time so we uh what we do kind of in the house like because we basically go home so what we'll do is in the summertime when the weather's fine we'll hey lynn the uh, the internet just cut out a little bit there which is quite surprising because we're both in australia and and you're not in india but anyway i was saying that the you know you live in a in a town where there's snow obviously in winter and there's no road access for six months or more and the majority of businesses are tourist towns uh, are tourist businesses for the Himalayas in the summertime. So a lot of those businesses and, and farms close down with the weather. So what's it like living in a community where everyone takes an extended break at the same time? Yeah, so I guess for the local people, it's fantastic. They look forward to winter time because they don't have any farm work. And those of them who are working in tourism, which is a lot of them, almost the majority of people, I'd say, um, they don't have any tourists to cater for. And, you know, most, as you say, the most of the businesses catering for tourists closed down. 
So for them, it's like uh, seven months of free time, um, family time, where they can go back to their, their roots, their village home, and they can spend time with their family and their, and their community. And they can, you know, this they have like communal bonfires every night and they sing folk songs and they do dancing and a lot. Of, it's wedding season and festival season and it's it's fun time for seven months. Um, for me, it's a little bit different. I find it exceptionally hard having come from Australia where I didn't, you know, I've never really had to go through a snowy winter. So I find it really cold. Um, and I use that time or I have used the time every year to come back to Australia and appreciate the Sydney summer. Um, so like it could be really bad, but for me, I come back to Australia almost every year. I have come back to Australia every year. I seem to find an excuse to come back to an Australia. And with no kind of commitments in India, uh, no work, no, you know, no businesses to run, no guest house to run, no travel agency, I can. I have the freedom to do that. Mm. Um, yeah. And, and I guess that's the, I guess the great, one of the great things that you've being able to do with designing this life is, is have that freedom of time. And it's something that I've spoken a lot about on the podcast about the time is the true currency and kind of being able to, I guess, have the best of both worlds, having that, that beautiful family and that life in India, and then also being able to enjoy the beautiful summer that we have here in Australia that everybody loves so much. But, you know, what aspect of the way that you, you live your life, you know, talking about designing your life, like what aspect of the way that you live your life right now do you really love? Yeah, I think, I think uh, look, the answer is that the flexibility of time in a sense that I am pretty proud that I've managed to set myself up with two businesses. So, you know, previously I had a job nine to five job and, you know, a boss and all the things people whinge about all the time. So I've, I've managed to set up two businesses where I can work for myself. And although that comes with its own challenges, um, they make me enough money to kind of live through the summer. And obviously things are a lot cheaper in India. So that helps. And they allow me to travel every year because I have a seven month vacation like an it's like I have it's like a forced vacation there's actually no work for me to do so you know I can't really do anything other than I could sit at home which is also really pleasing and do my own thing or for me I like to travel so I can maintain that desire for traveling and I can maintain my life in Australia I guess because I can come home and see my friends and family and you know I, I get to appreciate both sides of things um uh, like yeah so I that's I guess the biggest win for me is that I feel like I've designed a lifestyle with so much flexibility and because the businesses are essentially like, you know, mostly internet based. If I had a good internet connection, I, I don't even have to come back to Australia. Mm. I definitely have plans for, for traveling further and to different and new places. Um, so I could, I can do that, which is also quite exciting. I, you know, I can do that. Who mm. does that? I can do that. Exactly. And I think that's the beauty about the way that the world is set up these days is we can do whatever we want to do. It's often just going with that, that big idea and kind of pushing through those fears and self-limiting beliefs, which is really what live immediately is all about, like to stop pushing it off to tomorrow. And I think it's just beautiful, the life that you have created. But there are many differences and we've spoken about it, like differences like weather and 
running water and food and, and things like that from where you live now to your upbringing in Australia. But what is the main internal difference in how you live your life now? Um, look, there's not much. Like, I guess there's in, in, a, in the West, there's, there's, there's like everything, culture, there's, there's Mexican food. <laughs> there's everything in the West that, you know, you want it, you can download it, you can watch it, you, you can go there, you can eat that. Um, where I live, it's a really small place with really simple things and um, it does, it has taken a bit of getting used to that, you know, like I said before, we we don't, with the roads closed for seven months of the year, we don't get fresh food for seven months. So there's no fresh bananas and there's no fresh oranges and there's no, you know, we don't get seafood where we live. We live in a cold desert. There's no seafood. Um, they only eat, in terms of meat, they only eat goat and chicken. And even then, it's a, it's kind of a special food that you eat on occasion. So growing up in Australia where the thing to do is, you know, have a barbecue, I, I'm, I don't have that anymore. And I guess that's a big thing because culturally what I would do in India if I invited my friends over is that we would all sit around and chat, gossip and drink tea. And, uh, you know, we it's not really about the food it's about it's it's really about the time with the friends whereas when I go out with my friends we are like arguing about where we're going to eat what restaurant mm. we're going to have you know because there's so much choice here and um yeah for good and bad you know like it's great that we we get uh, where we can open our minds and open our our experience to to trying and learning so many different things but for me the I find it really challenging coming home to Australia where I'm like, really, we are going about this. Like, let's just go out and meet, you know, can't we just go out and have a cup of tea? Like, you know, let's get back to actually just catching up. Mm. Um, I think there's, there's beauty in the simplicity and that's the it's very simple. Mm. Yeah. And, and, you know, that has its, that has its like, you know, obvious drug, like bad things as well. I mean, I, we haven't really talked about this, but I had my baby. I have a son and I had my son in Ladakh and having a baby in India compared to what seems like having a baby in us in a Western country are just two like completely different experiences. I, I didn't, I still, I only learned like very recently what an obstetrician was. I, I we don't have those kinds of things in India. And I really, when I fell pregnant, I really dug my head in the sand um, about everything because I, I didn't want to go in with any expectations about, you know, what I should, the kind of treatment that I sh I just wanted to just let the doctors in India do their thing. Like whatever it takes, like just, just do it. You've had enough babies in India. Like well, there's 1 billion people in India. They clearly know what they're doing and they might do it a different way, but I'm, I had faith in the system and I, you know, now that I've come back to Australia and I've been here, you know, a couple of months and so my friends are having babies and learning about even in the public health system, they're getting options for spa or water babies or mm. whatever they call it. I don't even know what they call it. That That's kind of interesting for me because it's like, wow, you, you can like they even let you choose what music you want playing <laughs> in the delivery room. That's just amazing. Um, and that that 
I don't know, like that would be nice because I think not that I had a bad experience at all, like I actually was quite fine, but I, I think that the reason in the West there's so much choice and so much uh, there's abundance of everything is because we've developed and we've evolved, um, you know, for different reasons. So like small example, but we have car seats in Australia and in the West and in India, we don't really, well, where I live, there's no such thing as a car seat. People hold the baby on the lap and, you know, I actually bought a car seat because I, in my mind and in my upbringing, I thought it was absolutely imperative to have a car seat. And then I realized that like, it takes up space where three people could be sitting in my car. Like it just doesn't make any sense where I live. And, you know, when I, when I, in the beginning, I was really adamant that I was going to put my son in the car seat and people had to just get used to it. And then people would be like, no, you have to hold him. Like, it, it, why don't you hold him? And like, that was hard for me because I felt that they were kind of challenging my maternal instinct. Mm. Um, when in actual fact, women never used to drive over there. So it, they just held their son. Like, they held their children. They, they don't really have prams because you just put your son or your daughter in a blanket, like, strapped over your back or in a basket. You know, they don't, they don't need these things. But we've evolved and we've gone, hey, those beyond carriers are really useful. Or we could use a pram. Like, imagine putting the baby in wheels and then we could get our shopping done. Um, <laughs> you know, these kinds of things that are just totally different from where I live um, are actually like evolution for the better, I think. Yeah, well, 100%. I think, though, there's also an element of – and don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about like car seats or, or, or things like that that here. But there is there, there is sometimes where we we just add stuff because we we feel that if we're not adding, then we're not making it better. Maybe something is just perfect as it is, and that's just the way it's going to be for the rest of time. We don't need need to change it. Um, sometimes there's just too much choice, and then that choice, and I find anyway, sometimes too much choice. I'm like, I don't know which one to pick. I'm just not going to pick any. Um, yeah, but, um, I just, you know, thank you so much for your chat today, Lynn. And I've got one final question for you. And it is a question that I ask all my guests and that is, could you please describe your perfect day? My perfect day would be with my family. I don't know what we'd be doing. I don't really care, but uh, you know, with, I, it would be awesome if I could get both my families in, in their entireties to get together. I mean, I, my wedding was probably my perfect day. My parents and my brother and sister managed to travel over to India from Australia and they were there with my my Indian family um, but since then I've got a son and I've, I've got other siblings that have never been to India so wow it'd just be amazing if I could get everyone together and they would I don't know it'd just be great for both sides it would be a cultural experience for both sides and it would be it would mean a lot to me so I think that would be my perfect day you just need to find a good travel agent that could organize that <laughs> shameless plug right here but um yeah. again thank you so much for your story and like wow what an adventure it, it really is and I, I i just love your beautiful free spirit it's really lovely but if people do want to, if people do want to reach out to you um maybe learn a little bit about you or if people are interested in coming to the beautiful town of Ladakh, um what's the best way for them to get in contact with you yeah, you can reach us. Uh, you can Google Ladakh Travel Co. Uh, or you can, it's, you know, got a website, www.ladakhtravelco on Facebook page. 
Um, and we don't just organize tours to Ladakh. Basically, we can arrange things all over North India and I'll arrange things to places that I've only been myself. So, you know, places that I've personally been to and I can give personal advice about where to travel and what's good and what's not. Um, and everything's custom made. So you tell me what you're interested in and I can create something cool around that. Happy day. Sounds pretty good. And I'll make sure that um, all those links are in the show notes at liveimmediately.com. But is there anything that I've missed out? Any final comments before we say our farewell? No, thank you. Thank you, Mike, for, you know, giving me an opportunity to tell my story. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it was, yeah. um, it really was beautiful. And I hope that the, uh, the internet dropouts were fine with everybody and I'll, I'll do my best in the post editing. So we'll see what happens. But um, thanks again, Lynn, and uh, everybody listening. Thank you. And until next time, have fun and live immediately. That was another episode of the Live Immediately podcast with Mike Campbell. Thanks so much for listening. The original Live Immediately theme music is by the multi-talented Timothy McPhee. You can check out his music at firekites.bandcamp.com. If you enjoyed the show, had some fun, and maybe even learned something, then make sure you subscribe via iTunes. And while you're there, why not leave a rating and a review? You know it's going to make my day. Thanks for stopping by and giving me some of your time today. I'll catch you on the next episode. And until then, have fun and live immediately.